Welcome to You Heart to Hartford. My name is Abe Hefter. I'm, I'm an assistant professor of digital media and journalism in the School of Communication at the University of Hartford. Now, on this podcast, we take you inside the University of Hartford and share with you the stories that are being told by the many talented people who are the University of Hartford. Faculty, staff, students, alumni, the experience and experiences they are sharing on our West Hartford campus and beyond. Now, joining us today is Dan Robinson. He is a UHART alum and project manager within the strategic operations team at Capitol Records, the recording home of the Beatles in their Beatlemania days. Dan hails from East Brunswick, New Jersey, graduated from the Hart School with a BA in music management in December of 2016. After working in uh, several facets throughout the music industry, uh, moving cross-country to California, he's now working on the strategic arm of the Universal Music Group's Atmos project, and he's based out of the Capitol Records Tower. He joins us today from Santa Monica, California. Dan, welcome to You Heart to Hartford, and I, I guess you could also say welcome back to the University of Hartford. Thanks so much, Abe. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. First off, uh, a question we're all asking in earnest in these COVID-19 times. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for asking. I hope the same goes for you. Uh, just trying to keep my sanity, stay active, and uh, keep the train uh, rolling. How about yourself? Uh, good. Uh, it's been interesting times. Uh, still, you know, somewhat hunkered down here, but uh, trying to get in those daily walks. Uh, I guess we all look forward to, to better times. As someone who studied uh, music management at the Hart School, I would imagine you have a love of music. So tell us about your, I guess, your interest in music and how it might have guided you at the University of Hartford and beyond. Sure. So I actually, I started playing guitar when I was 13. I got it from my mom. She was playing when I was growing up. And it was always a big passion of mine. I was a songwriter when I was like 17, 18. Um, and I went to college with a completely different, uh, career trajectory. I wanted to go in the FBI and be uh, be an analyst of sorts. And then I got into a band and everything changed. So I actually left my first college of the University of Alabama to transfer to the Hart School just for their music management program. So the um, the reputation of the Hart School really was of what was what drew me to the University of Hartford in the first place. Now, uh, what? And by the way, I have to tell you, I'm a guitarist as well, so we will have to jam one day, even if it's virtually. <laughs> what exactly is music management and the study of music management? So within the Hart School, it was a it was a pretty all encompassing program. We had to take ear training, theory, piano, and then some sort of applied music uh course like i took choir for instance uh and you had to do that every semester so i was there for two and a half years so i took seven semesters of those subjects along with the business curriculum like the the history of music you had to take um business and technology uh, copyright licensing there were a whole bunch of other courses um but it was all wrapped into one pretty extensive program i guess do you come into the music industry specifically as it relates to the work that you do at Universal Music Group from a technical perspective, from that management perspective, a combination of the two? How does that work? It's definitely a combination of the two. Um, I've worked in a couple of different facets. I've worked in, uh, in live engagements at a talent agency. I've worked in copyright and licensing and now at a record label. So they all differ in how they operate and their their responsibilities, but the overall knowledge of how the industry works remains the same. 
So my technical aspects, I'm just applying, but the the knowledge base of how the music industry works from a, a subset level is is the same. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a combination of the two. Dan, how was it that you were able to uh, successfully get that first job? The first job was tough, uh, for sure. Um, I was living in New Jersey at the time after school, and I was looking for jobs in New York, and I couldn't get one because most of them were finance-based from what I saw. Spotify, record labels, a lot of them were the the math side of of the industry, which was not my strong suit. So I figured I'll go to LA, and I'll, I'll try to make it work. So thankfully, due to one of my bandmates in Alabama, he is the manager of Guitar Center in Hollywood. Mm. So he was like, I'll get you a job. When can you be here? I was like, uh, I'll pack up my car and I'll just go. So at the time in New Jersey, I was managing bands under my own LLC and I was doing work for a concert promoter down in Asbury Park in the Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi kind of kind of vibe. So I was down there and I told him we were working out of his house and he just gave me a little laptop or no, I was using my own. Sorry, but he gave me a little room to work in. And I was like, Tony, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. But I got to go and, and pursue the industry. So mm-hmm. I came out here and started working at Guitar Center and just had to hustle and network to the fullest extent. Do you still play? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I just recorded another EP project that I'm working on. So when uh, the coronavirus allows things to open up a bit and studios reopen, I'm definitely going to finish it and, and get it pushed out. Now, uh, Dan, I must admit, when I heard of your work um, with Capitol Records, my my response was, it was almost visceral. And what I mean by that is that iconic Capitol Records logo flashed in my mind immediately and how I would be mesmerized by it as a young boy watching it go round and round at 33 and a third per minute while listening to the Beatles. So how did you end up at the recording home of the Fab Four? It's an amazing place, first off. That building is truly special. And it's something that the second you walk through the halls, you can feel it. And you see all the pictures of Sinatra and all the all the legends who have walked through there. And it, it really has history in the walls. It's amazing. Um, but I was working. I initially got pulled from my last job. I started working on a research project, um, which was strictly technical um, for Universal Music in a different office in Santa Monica itself. And after a couple of weeks of being there, they saw that I had a proficiency in certain areas, and they pulled me. And they uh, they got a call. I got a call from them. They told me to show up. I didn't know what I was working on. They were like, "Be here on Monday." Like, okay. So I show up at Capitol on Monday, no clue what I'm doing. And they sat me down and they just kind of walked through the entire project and process. And we're like, all right, here it is. Help us. So it was really, um, it was brand new when I started there. They had the ball rolling on a backend perspective, but it wasn't public yet. We didn't really have too big of a catalog to, um, to work with that. Well, we had a huge catalog to work with, but we didn't have a big catalog that was already produced. And um, it was really the beginning of this entire project. So it's been a great, a great experience and an amazing learning curve. So um, about that learning curve. uh, So how long have you been there now? I've been there about a year. And how many different roles, how many different positions have you had? Endless, endless. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's constantly changing because the project has evolved so much and so many, 
new partners have come in and new endeavors and there's been new priorities. And I've, we've just all kind of had to put our hats on as a team and say, okay, how do we tackle this in the best way? So it started as data analysts, then more project management and research. It's, it's really all uh, wrapped into one at this point. Do you ever feel like you're a, a kid in a candy store? Every day. Every day. Every time we get a new album or um, a piece of work that I've, I've heard since I was a kid or I come into work and there's some big event going on because this artist is recording in the studios, every day is, mm. is a, a candy store experience. Uh, what specifically do you do as a project manager within the strategic operations team at the Universal Music Group? So our big, the the 60 foot thousand view of this project is we're essentially converting music that's been previously released or it could be new either way into a full 3D music experience. So that's what Dolby Atmos is. It's a 3D technology. So there, there can be anywhere from 20 speakers in a room or two Amazon like echo speakers that can connect to each other. And the Atmos technology will allow those speakers to all communicate and will allow you to say, okay, I want the vocal in this corner. I want the guitar in this corner. I want the drums behind me and I want the bass over here. And they keep it that way for a couple of seconds and then they can move it around. So you can have sweeping guitars and pianos and it literally sounds like they're, they're moving it around you. So my primary responsibility is working on the workflow of that entire process. So anything from doing the research to acquire the multi-tracks and the stems of these songs at a base level, um, doing the research to transfer uh, Blue Note or any of these older songs from tape to digital, um, and then putting them into our workflow, being able to track them and say, okay, we've acquired them. We now are moving them to an approval level internally, then to an engineer to create into this new technology, there's a new mix, you have to remix it into a new into into Atmos, and then to release it. So it's a full uh, workflow process that I'm involved in. So it's called Dolby Atmos. That's the name of the project. Uh, where is the project? Where does it stand right now? Uh, it's going really well right now. We've we've just signed a huge deal um, with with a streaming service. And our Content is currently on Amazon Music and Tidal. So we are in full throttle getting the two of them our, our biggest catalogs and just making Atmos something that consumers can get to every day. I mean, if you're going to be surrounded by Dolby Atmos sound, uh, will it be as, you know, in, as, a, as, a, as a listener of music? I mean, will we get this experience in a movie theater? So the technology actually originated in a movie theater. So I believe movie theaters have been using this technology for like seven, eight years, and they can arc sounds over the audience and move things as the picture is going on. Right. So it actually stemmed from movies, and now mm. we're taking the same principles and applying it to music streaming. When you look at a project like Dolby Atmos, is there a certain time frame associated with it? Will you be working on it for a while and then um, kind of move on to another project? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, this Atmos project is all encompassing and there's a lot going on and Universal Music has a lot of content to convert into mm -hmm. Atmos. So it's really just a matter of how much content we want to push out and uh, how it's being received by the public. And it sounds incredible, by the way. So <laughs> um, it's just a matter of, uh, 
it's a matter of workflow from everybody else. I'm not sure, to be honest, but we'll see. I'm excited either way. This might sound like an odd question, but how much do your own ears come into play here when it comes to this project and and developing the type of sound that you're looking for? In my particular role, not too much. The only time where I really have to use um, an educated ear is in deciphering versions of a song. So we, or of an album rather. So we, we could have two versions of the same song or album, or we could have 20 versions of the same song or album. So mm. rather than looking at, metadata and release dates and all that sometimes you have to use your ears to say okay this is the version with the orchestra without the orchestra with this vocal that vocal so every once in a while i'll have to use my ears and be able to decipher certain products but that's much more of an engineer endeavor than my own right um dan the music industry has uh experienced a, a sea change over the years i guess both um, when it comes to the performers who perform the music and those of us who love to listen, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember eight tracks and, and, and vinyl when it was original, of course, it's, it's back again, CDs are gone. Um, there are streaming services from your perspective, where are we going in this industry? Well, I, th I think that's an interesting question. Um, and I don't remember who put this idea in my head initially, but I don't, I don't believe I, I came up with this on my own. I think it was a professor at heart, to be honest, but I feel like the industry has sort of flipped on itself where back in the sixties and seventies, you used to make records or you used to go on tour to promote your record and your record was what made you money. Now it seems like the inverse is true where you make records to promote your tour and touring is where you make your money. So now with streaming and digital rights and all that, it's, it's changed pretty dramatically. And I think with this virus in particular, it's getting highlighted even more mm -hmm. where you see people live streaming concerts. Like for instance, Dave Matthews is doing a live stream concert tonight with this full band. So they, there are branding deals in place with that. And they're, um, they're giving those digital rights to stream through certain mediums. So I think, the the digital rights specter is really going to start to dominate, especially while people are quarantined. Um, but live events has been a, a big money maker over the past like five ten years for the music industry for sure. Do you think that the pressure is on technology, if you will, to uh, you know create a musical experience for the listener at a time, unfortunately, when we we you know we can't see these bands uh, in person. Um, so are we, um, kind of, you know, in, in, in hyperdrive there for the technology to catch up to the experience that, you know, we'd all love to have as, as, as music fans? Well, I think that's where Atmos has a niche where it can create an all encompassing music environment. Mm -hmm. Um, because you can't experience that through, through two headphones. You only have a left and a right. There's no 3d spatial awareness involved where Atmos is the counter to that, where it can do that sort of thing. The only the only way I can see this extending even further is VR. So if you create a VR experience where it looks like you're standing at a festival in a crowd, and then you put Atmos around you, and you can have a 360 sound with the visual, hmm. that could be the only way I see it extending further. But to be honest, audio quality is already at its highest. Video quality is pretty pretty damn high. So from like a consumer standpoint of sitting on your couch and looking at a screen and viewing it, I feel like we might be maxing out soon. I just mm -hmm. think VR and Atmos and like 3D awareness 
might be the only place that it can really expand further. I'd love to see your stereo system at home. It's not that extensive. <laughs> I wish I had what they have in Capital. It's incredible. They have in one room, they have 20 speakers embedded in walls and they're all connected. So with Atmos, it sounds like the, the sound is pushing through a wall left and right and behind and mm. you can't even see the speakers. It's incredible. I don't have anything like that. I wish. Okay. Now, I, I think you mentioned that uh, uh, you're going to be re- releasing an EP. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, correct. So I was actually at a networking event in, at UCLA when I first moved here and saw a couple of the panel speakers, and one of them happened to be a, pro- a multi-Grammy-nominated producer and all of that. So while working at Guitar Center and selling guitars, when I first moved here, I he happened to walk into the store, and I recognized him from this panel. So we got to chatting. I sent him my first album that I did at heart for my friend's senior project. And um, and I emailed it to him. I was like, this was super low budget. It was for like $100 and a bottle of Jack. Keep that in mind. <laughs> and I sent it to him, and he loved it. And luckily, I had um, I had Matt Beltrucky, I believe is his name. He mastered it for me. Um, and it was, he's a professor of audio engineering at heart and it it sounded great. So I sent it to him. He loved it. And it's just been a a great experience from there. So we have like a six song EP that we've worked on for the past year or so. And, uh, it should be a really, really great product. Best of luck with that. That's, that's really exciting. Um, so fun fact, I was living and working in Atlanta at the time, 2000, 1999, maybe. And I went to the guitar center there and uh, I bought a um, a Guild Starfire that I owned mm. for, uh, I guess, about 18 years. And I tend to trade my guitars around and uh, uh, settled with a Gibson SG. So uh, mm. I, I've spent a fair amount of time in Guitar Center. So I, 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 I can appreciate that. What's, your, what's the first song you play when you pick up a guitar to try it out? Oh, man. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a blues fan. You know, all I need is A, E, and D, and I'm I, and I'm I'm off to the races. <laughs> what about you? Uh, it's tough. Probably "Good Love Is On The Way" by okay. John Mayer. Oh, that's you great. You haven't heard that? Yeah, yeah I've heard great, that. Great, great riff. Uh, so, okay, um, your favorite band? <sighs> that's tough. I'm gonna have to either go Dave Matthews as well, okay. or maybe Dead and Company. Oh, those are two. Or a Curveball Wolfpack. Okay, Wolfpack, an incredible funk band out mm-hmm. of Michigan. Mine was uh, growing up, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I, I never saw them play as a band, but I saw John Fogarty twice, maybe three times. He played Place des Arts in Montreal once, and that's you know Place des Arts is um, you know it's not an arena venue. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, this is going to be a, probably a subdued show. Uh, mm-hmm. So I went in without my my earplugs, and oh my gosh, it was so <laughs> loud. Yeah. And he had about a dozen guitars uh, that he would trade throughout each song during his sets. And I got to know each each guitar and, and how loud that song would be based on the guitar that he picked up. So if he picked up that particular <laughs> Les Paul, I thought, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay for now. But if he picks up that one, I'm in mm-hmm. trouble. But anyways. Was the right. mix was the mix of the full band altered to that one guitar being loud, or did that one guitar just overpower everything? I it just seemed like it was just Piercing my eardrums. That's about the only way I can explain yeah. it. I loved every minute of it, but um, yeah, it was uh, it it was uh, loud. Well, I, I know we all miss loud um, uh, loud and live music, um, and hopefully that will be with us uh, sooner than later. And Dan, again, uh, I wish you all the best 
um, in the future with your career and and your and your music career as well. Promise us that uh, you'll you'll share your EP with us when it's released. Absolutely, Abe. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Dan Robinson, a UHart alum, project manager within the strategic operations team at Capitol Records. Our guest today on a UHart to Hartford. Again, thank you, Dan, so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Abe. Appreciate it. Thank you.